Welcome back to Bad on Paper Podcast. I'm Grace Atwood. And I'm Becca Freeman. And today we have an amazing bonus episode with you. We have Alexis Daria with us. Alexis is a native New Yorker and award-winning author writing stories about successful Latinx characters and their occasionally messy families. Her debut, Take the Lead, won the 2018 Rita Award for the best first book and was one of the best romance novels of 2017 in the Washington Post and Entertainment Weekly. Her superpowers include spotting celebrities in NYC, winning Broadway ticket lotteries, and live tweeting. Welcome, Alexis. Hi, thanks so much for having me. And I don't think we mentioned the most important part is that she's the author of our October book club pick, You Had Me at Ola. Yeah, I kind of left that out. <laughs> little, little bit important. I mean, before we get into it, tell me about some of these celebrity sightings. Oh, man. There have been a lot of them. Some of the best ones, I think, I saw Rachel Maddow Ooh, that's in the neighborhoods. One. So I actually did stop her to thank her for everything that she's doing. I think this was maybe in 2017 that I saw her. And some others, God, now I can't think of any. That's okay. I feel like when somebody puts you on the spot, <laughs> yeah. you have no idea. I feel like I'm very impressed because I have the opposite superpower where I can justify away any celebrity I see as being somebody who looks like that celebrity. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that really looks like Rachel Maddow. That's wild. I just have bad eyesight and never see notice. <laughs> no, I just have really good facial recognition. So I, someone could be walking down the street like in sunglasses and a hat, and I'm like, oh, that's Zachary Quinto, or that's Daniel Day Lewis. Wow, or that's, you know, people like that. That seriously is a skill. So we introduced you, but we would love to hear more about you in your own words. Can you tell us a little more about you and about your writing career? Sure. I started publishing three years ago this month, uh, but I've been writing for much longer than that. I started with uh, my debut, Take the Lead, which was a the beginning of a series inspired by Dancing with the Stars, of which I am a huge fan. Although I haven't really been watching this season as much because of writing obligations. <laughs> yeah, I just writing was something that I always did as a side hobby or project. My career career. My training was in art, fine arts and computer arts and things like that. So when I started working, I did things like that along with all kinds of other jobs. And then a few years ago, I decided to just go all in on writing and really give it the same shot that I had given art. And now here I am. That's so exciting. So wait, since you have a background in art, do you design your own covers? Uh, so fun fact, I did design the covers for my dance-off series. Uh-huh. And with You Had Me at Ola, I wanted to make sure that we had an illustrator who could do a better job than I could. Uh, and I did say that to my editor, and I don't know why she still like dealt with me after that. <laughs> after that. Um, but she's very nice. And we got the artist that I wanted. I really wanted um, Bo to do the art, Bo Feng Lin. And he's just an amazing artist. And I was so, so happy that he agreed to do the cover for You Had Me at Ola. And it's just, it was like beyond my wildest dreams how it turned out. Is that common? How does that usually work with, does the author usually get input on the cover or get to pick the person who designs the cover? Not usually. Oh, okay. But because of my background um, and because this is one of those areas where I'm a little bit of a control freak, I really push for it in my contracts to get as much cover control as I can. Gosh. And I, I make that like very clear up front before I sign them. That's wild to think that you wouldn't have that kind of control. I mean, I, I understand it has to be like so much work to like pick a cover and things, but it's just like it's representing you and it's in bookstores everywhere. And to think that you don't get to control that would be, these are just things that like us, like we're very avid readers, but we're obviously not authors. Don't even think about. Yeah, exactly. You know, your cover is part of your branding, yeah. um, but most authors that I hear from, they just kind of get their cover and the publisher's like, okay, here's your cover. Isn't it great? Like, we already posted it everywhere, you know? Wow. That's really upsetting to me. I'm a, I, I'm a very aesthetics-driven person, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> me too. Yeah. Well, wow. now you know if you ever write a book, get cover control, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what, though? There are some authors who know that that's not their field. So they just will go with whatever the publisher and the art department uh, choose to do and don't really have an opinion on it. I have so many opinions <laughs> about cover design, so they have to hear them. But I really lucked out here that they were willing to listen to my vision and also bring their own ideas to the table. And Elsie, my my artist in the Avon team, 
hand lettered the text on the cover and it just fits so beautifully. So between the design and the illustration, I'm just so happy with it. Oh, that's amazing. So let's talk more about this book. So I love that it was set against the backdrop of a telenovela. And I'm very into these like niche settings. I feel like, you know, I've read so many romances at this point that like normal people romance doesn't do it for me anymore. <laughs> like, um, same. Setting. <laughs> but where did this come from? Have you watched a lot of telenovelas in your life? So I watch a lot of TV in general. Okay. And okay. I grew up with my grandmother watching telenovelas in the background, um, but she would kick me and my cousin out of the room when she was watching them. Oh, you were allowed? She, it wasn't about the context because the TV was always on in her house and we watched whatever was on and whatever anybody was watching, which was not always good. But she, I think, didn't want us talking during it or bothering oh. her. So she would make us go in the kitchen while she watched her novelas. And so I I was aware of them. And then I did watch American Soaps. I watched The Young and the Restless from a young age. Oh, wow. Okay. With my babysitter, who was also Puerto Rican, but she would watch the American Soaps and my grandmother would watch the ones in Spanish. So I had both. And then there were some things that I watched that, again, like really inappropriate. Like I started watching 90210 and Melrose Place when they came out and I was a child. Oh, same. (laughs) I wasn't allowed to watch 90210, which made me want to watch 90210 even more. My own pair watched it and I would sneak in and watch it with her and then it was too late. And then my parents realized what it was and they were like, no, you are not allowed to watch this. And I remember I was like in grade school. And I should not have been watching it. And I went to like school and was talking about 90210 and everyone was like, why are you watching that? Like, <laughs> See, I had a different experience. Like I would watch it with my mom. Oh. And my mom was like, Alexis, Melrose Place is on. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and we would watch them together and talk about the characters. And I, I'm pretty sure my friends must have watched too because I think we talked about it in school. Um, but to me, it was just like the next level of Saved by the Bell. Yeah. So you know, I was into those kind of things. Um, Yeah, just a lot of television. And when I started working on this book, I decided that Jasmine was going to work in soaps because I wanted her to have this like very great work ethic and um, career, but not be as well known. Mm -hmm. And then with Ashton deciding that he was going to be her grandmother's favorite telenovela character or actor, that's kind of where that came in more. And originally I just had them on a TV show together. And then as I started working on it, I was like, shoot, why didn't I make this a, a movie, like a rom-com movie or something? And then I was thinking about it even more. And I was like, oh, what if it's like the remake of A Tela Novela, the way that Jane the Virgin and Ugly Betty and Queen of the South have been? So because that's already something that's happening, um, that seemed like a very natural way to move into it. I loved it. Did you do research? Did you watch some of these classic telenovelas as research for this show? So... I I did watch some, and then there are some that I watched, like when they were airing, like Ugly Betty and Jane the Virgin. But I, there's Funny or Die has this uh, like playlist on their YouTube channel called Telenovelas or Hell. It basically (laughs) recaps classic telenovelas like Marimar and Ruby and like things like that, and with like a very funny voiceover and like all of the wild things that happen. So I watched all of those a bunch of times. They're hilarious. And I was like, okay, basically anything I can think of to include, like anything goes because these are just so wild and out there. When we were talking about the book in our episode yesterday, I was saying to Grace that I was like, I would really like to watch The Glamour Squad. Like that sounds like something I would watch. Oh, yeah, it it, it does. But Becca was like, I want that show. I was like, ah. <laughs> yeah, I always like to think of like, Things like that. I did that in my dance off series too, where all of the pop culture was made up. So for this one, I tried to incorporate some real life stuff and some fake things. And some of them, you know, just end up being really fun. Yeah. Well, we were obsessed with Jasmine's big boisterous family. And we read in your bio that you write about Latinx characters and their occasionally messy families. Now, do you borrow inspiration from your own family? Oh, yeah. So I also grew up in the Bronx, like Jasmine and her primas, her cousins. Um, And that was the piece that really kicked off the idea for this book was to write about this Puerto Rican family in the Bronx where the grandmother's house was kind of like the central meeting place. And the grandmother was like kind of the head of the family. And everybody would go there and all of the family events would happen there. And there are these complicated family dynamics for sure, but everybody still comes together. 
And that is something that I really like to explore in my writing is these complicated family dynamics and specifically within Latinx families. How do your family members feel when characters are based off of them? Do they like it or are they not so keen? So my cousin, Lisa, who coined the phrase primas of power, was reading the book and she was texting me and she was like, oh, that one is like totally like our cousin. (laughs) She would do something like that. But then she was like, I don't know who Jasmine is most like. And I was like, well, Jasmine is like, she takes a little bit from people that I know or people that I'm related to. But for the most part, like when I write a whole book, the character becomes their own. Yeah. I don't, neither of us have like really large families, so I really enjoyed it. And I loved seeing how close she was to her cousin. We talked about this a little bit in yesterday's episode, but I thought that it was really cool that you had her be kind of closer to her cousins than her actual siblings. I don't know. I just I liked that. Yeah. And that that was intentional. That was actually really where the root of the idea came from was to show this cousin friend group because I I have that. I'm very close with some of my cousins. Um, I have a brother, but he called me the other day and I I had sent him books like two months ago and I kept texting him like, did you get the books? And no reply. So I would call my mom who lives in the same house. And I was like, did he get the books? He hasn't replied to anything from me. And she was like, I'll tell him, I'll tell him. And finally he called me the other day because the two of them were in the car together. And she was probably like, call your sister. (laughs) You know, with my, with some of my cousins, we text each other like all the time. I love that. We have a, I have a group text with my, I have one cousin that's like a sister and we call it our fight club. And because (laughs) nobody, it's the group text, we're not supposed to talk about it. I just broke the rule of fight club. So I'll I'll stop talking. (laughs) Also, this is not about me, but I love the cousin dynamic so much. And I love the family dynamic. Like, I felt kind of just jealous that I didn't have that, like, with the big family for the grandmother's birthday and stuff. All my grandparents are dead now. So I was just really like, that was my favorite part of the book was how close they all were. Yeah. It's also a little aspirational, too, in terms of yeah, you know, the kind of like the bigness of the family. Like, we always just did things in my grandmother's house. And um, she's the only grandparent I have left. So I was just thinking about this like idea of like having like all your grandparents like Jasmine does and um, how that would feel. Yeah. So to switch gears a little bit. Away from family. Away from family. (laughs) Well, maybe about making a family. Um, I wanted to talk about how steamy this book was. And we've never talked to an author before, I don't think, about how to write a sex scene. These were some of the best sex scenes I've ever read. I have to say that. Oh, thank you. So I'm, um, I'm curious, like, how do you go about writing a sex scene? It's a lot of work. You bet. <laughs> it's very technical, you know, and I, I've actually been kind of amused by the response and like everyone saying how steamy it is because I've read so much romance over the years and I like, I think I first found erotica when I was like 18 <laughs> and I was like, whoa, <laughs> um, Anne Rice has this like really out there like series under a pen name. And actually I read the first one of those when I was 16 and that was eye-opening. So I wrote this and I was like, this is like normal. No, I feel like sometimes you go in knowing that you're reading a romance. Like it's like a guy with rippling abs on the cover and you're like, oh yeah, I know what I'm getting into here. But then sometimes, and I feel like this has happened more recently, the cover doesn't necessarily tell you. And it's not a bad thing, but like I feel like Jasmine Guillory's books are like that. Yours are like that. Talia Hibbert's, what was the... Oh, get a life, Chloe Brown. Yeah. Like some of these you look like, you know, I read a lot of British rom-coms, which are usually very um, mm. PG. PG. And, um, you know, it looks like something like that. And then, you know, I actually with this one wasn't sure where it was going, if it was going to be steamy, because the first sex scene doesn't happen until I think almost halfway it's through. It's a midpoint sex scene, which is usually what I do. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. It's the false high. <laughs> Okay. Then we got more after the first one. Oh, yeah. Usually there's only yeah. like maybe two. I think there was – I can't remember. Only Four? two? Yeah. There, there's well, a whole bunch of um, – there's more in the next book. Woo! Um, wait, are we getting a sequel to this? So this series is going to follow Jasmine and her cousins. So the first <gasps> book is Jasmine and Ashton. The second book is about Michelle. And then the third book is about Ava. Oh, oh, how fun. We've really fallen in love with this family. So I, I'm so excited. I'm hoping yeah. do we get some – sneak peeks of like what's going on with Jasmine in the in the second and third books oh you will oh I love that this is so, don't worry oh I'm, so fun. I'm, I have chills right now I'm really excited we got very attached to these characters oh good yeah I love them I love their whole family and you know it's just been so much fun writing these books um 
Michelle's book definitely came out a little differently than I expected because uh, I went for a much earlier sex scene. Like normally I do it at the midpoint. So there's this kind of like progression. And then as the relationship is falling apart, they're still physically intimate, but they're becoming more emotionally distant. And with the next one, I did like an end of act one sex scene and like things might change. My editor hasn't actually read the book yet, but hopefully that will remain. And from there, it just like kind of spirals. But yeah, writing them, it's really technical. I always try to think about not making them all the same and not making them the same as the other books I've written and specifically the emotional component. Like what's happening emotionally with them? Are they getting closer together? Or are they actually growing apart because you know all of their emotional baggage is coming up now? Uh, that kind of stuff. We wanted to ask a kind of strange question. It might not be. Is it a strange question? I don't think so. Okay. So we both picked up on this because we both read it separately. And then we worked on the she, – she wrote the outline. And then I was reading her notes in the outline. And the lube references, we both picked up on that. And we'd never seen lube mentioned so – because it was in every sex scene. Mm-hmm. What, what, like, what, I don't know, like, what my, what was my question here? I'm getting nervous talking about lube. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not prim and proper. I just, (laughs) I guess, can you tell us, like, was that intentional? Did it just kind of happen? Like, what was the decision process like there? Uh, That was intentional. Um, Again, it was a way to make the scenes different. Yeah. Um, It was also uh, that there had been a conversation probably on Twitter about normalizing lube. And there's a lot of things that I'm trying to normalize in this book, like therapy and, you know, other things like that. So this was one of them. And just, I think the way that we do that is just to make it normal and just include it like it's normal and not have them make a big deal about it. So that was what I went with here. You know, it's not something that Ashton like gives her a hard time about or anything like that. And then especially because of the way their first like intimate moment goes, like, for him, I kind of needed it to be in the scene. Yeah. Yeah. So then after that, it's just like, oh, this is a thing that she wants and he's learning her desires. And so they include it. Yeah. I love that. I've never seen it lube used in a romance book except for in like, you know, like a Fifty Shades of Grey scene where it's like we're going to do something that is like somewhat something like BDSM. <laughs> yeah. But like – in terms of like regular sex. And I, I really liked that. I used to work at a sexual health company that – Oh, cool. Um, well, it was a feminine care company. And we launched sexual health products and we did a ton of market research on lube. And it was something that like a lot of women felt really embarrassed by. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting that women feel that way. And so I loved that this book made it like such a non-issue. Yeah, I did And it, too. he was just like, oh, I'm going to grab the lube. Like – no problem. He wasn't like, oh, that's, you know, there was never a conversation about it where he was like passing judgment or like questioning it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was, that was the point of it to just have it be a normal thing that she wants and he's cool with because like, why should he judge her? Um, You know, that would not be very heroic of him (laughs) as a romance hero. So yeah. And it was just, again, a way I could make it a little bit different too. Yeah. What are some other books of your what are some of your other favorite books that go there with open door sex scenes? Oh man. Um, there's so many. <laughs> um, okay. So one that is like one of my top books from this year that is really, really hot, but also so funny and such a good rom-com, like definitely deserves the rom-com label is the worst best man by Mia Sosa. And it it's really hot. Like there is a scene with a car and I, I think I texted her after that. I was like, whoa, Mia. Um, it's it's really good and definitely open door. Um I haven't read that one. I'm gonna have to put it on my put it on my list. So I'm on Amazon right now. I'm just <laughs> I'm, I'm just adding it to my favorites. I try not to buy my books on Amazon, but um yeah. It is convenient to have a wish list there. Yeah. I'm just gonna look at- I have to put everything in something or I forget about it later. Same. It's getting um, old. <laughs> Joanna Shoup, if you like historicals, also has some super hot scenes um, in her Uptown Girls series, which are about these three sisters who kind of get mixed up with guys who are kind of part of the Gilded Age New York City underworld. Oh, Ooh, like I'm not usually a historical person, but that is the one era that I can make an exception for. Um, like I don't necessarily like um, Regency stuff, but mm-hmm. I I could get on board with like Gilded Age New York. And you look yeah. at these covers and you know what you're getting into. They are 
bodice rippers. Right. Yeah. I mean, the covers thing kind of has made it hard. I definitely can feel that as a reader too. So that was one of the things that I I was very happy about with my cover was that I felt like it still conveyed that like, this is a romance novel and there's like some heat between them. Okay. Even though Ashton is fully clothed. I mean, for me, it's a bonus, like as somebody who enjoys that type of romance in addition to closed door romance. I'm like, oh, it's a bonus if there are sex scenes. But I have found myself more recently with some of the cover trends being surprised where I didn't realize what I was getting into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, Tessa Dare. I think she is also historical, but um, her books also feel like historical rom-coms, but are really sexy. She's got this series called Girl Meets Duke, which like, they're such good books. And it starts with The Duchess Deal. Okay. Um, And the second book is The Wallflower Wager, which I think is a perfect book. And then if you like sci-fi, my friend uh, Robin Lovett has a Sex Planet series, which is not called Sex Planet because like algorithms on (laughs) retailers wouldn't like that. But it's, um, it starts with, I think it's Toxic Desire. And they, these two people who are enemies crash land on a sex planet and have to work together to survive so they're basically like camping through the the woods on this planet but everything in the planet like from the atmosphere to the the plants and everything just like makes them really want to get it on interesting yeah wow so let's take a quick sponsor break this episode is sponsored by hello fresh america's number one meal kit and if you're feeling like you're in a cooking rut i cannot recommend hello fresh highly enough they do all the shopping and prep so all you have to do is cook eat and enjoy And there's something for everyone. They have options for classic, low-calorie, family-friendly, or veggie every single week. So I said this before. I don't think I'm the typical meal kit customer. I like to cook. I'm a pretty good cook. But um, when I'm busy, I just feel like meal kits save me so much time and mental effort because I don't have to put any thought into meal planning, and they do all the shopping for me. So I've gotten HelloFresh two weeks in a row just as – we're getting Rom-Com Pod's new season off the ground. I just haven't had mental bandwidth to cook. And I love that I get something new to me and interesting to cook. All the recipes come together really quickly. They usually take 20 to 30 minutes. They're not hard. They're not time intensive. And the recipes are so good. Last week, I got a new to me recipe. I got the cheesy smothered mushroom chicken And it was such good comfort food. It was so, so, so good. And honestly, not something that like I normally would have thought to cook or was in my recipe repertoire. So it was a great like different thing to have for dinner too. And one of the biggest things that I love is that they have pre-portioned ingredients. So I get exactly what I need and I don't have any food waste. There is just nothing worse to me than like trying to make a new recipe, buying some exotic ingredient, using a tiny bit of it, and then you have so much left over and you're like, how do I use this? So I love that I only get what I need and I'm not creating waste. And another thing that I love is that HelloFresh has taken extra steps to keep its employees and customers safe, including contactless delivery, tamper-proof packaging, and team member wellness checks. HelloFresh donated 2.5 million meals to charity in 2019, and this year they're stepping up their food donations to local communities amid the coronavirus crisis. I know we're all doing a lot more eating at home recently, so if you've run out of ideas, you should definitely try HelloFresh. And we have an offer for you. Go to HelloFresh.com slash ADBOP and use code ADBOP to get a total of $80 off across five boxes, including free shipping on your first box. So again, go to HelloFresh.com slash ADBOP and use code ADBOP to get a total of $80 off across five boxes, including free shipping on your first box. That is such a good deal. Back to the episode. Um, so going back to your book, I another thing that I really liked that you put in here was the meeting with the intimacy coordinator. Yes. And I'm wondering first how you went about researching that and if you if that's something that's pretty common on sets today. I don't know that it's common. It's definitely becoming used more widely. Okay. Uh, it started in theater um, where I think it's called like an intimacy choreographer or coach or director or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in film and TV, I was told this by someone who does it for theater. It's called an intimacy coordinator. And, you know, their role is to choreograph those scenes to make sure that there is consent given at every level, that people's boundaries are not being crossed, that everybody's comfortable. Um, And then there's something uh, else related to that that I couldn't 
get into the book because I found out about it too late. There's something called a nudity rider where they basically have negotiated like exactly which parts of their body they're comfortable showing. So that's all set up up front. Oh, wild. Um, Yeah. Like, you know, five inches from this, but like not six, you know, like things like that. Um, So the intimacy coordinator, I think like plays a a vital role. And I didn't know about that when I was plotting this book. Um, And luckily author friend of mine, Evie Klein told me about it because I think it really added something to the book and put a twist on this like, like kissing practice trope that shows up so much in these kind of stories that revolve around show business. Um, and it made it like not icky, especially with everything um, that's been happening with stories coming out about what it's like on these movie sets and with these bigger film people. So it kind of created this, um, this kind of bubble for Ashton and Jasmine to get closer in like a safe and intimate way before they were ready to do that, like in their own romance storyline. I loved um, so that. the scenes were really fun. I, I loved the book within a book of seeing some of the scenes of the telenovela juxtaposed with the their actual romance. And I thought that was such a fun and interesting thing to see. Sometimes it kind of like rode the same emotional arc where, you know, like they were getting ready for their big kissing scene and like they were feeling more attracted to each other. But I thought it was even more interesting when it was the opposite and like when like they were in a huge fight, but they had to have a steamy scene. Like I, I guess I've never really thought about like what the emotional highs and lows must be like behind the scenes for actors in in this type of atmosphere. You just kind of like, they're kind of like paper dolls. You're like, this is here for my enjoyment. Oh, I'm obsessed with it. Like with the behind the scenes stuff of what goes into filming of what the actor's mindsets are when all of this stuff is happening, both with the filming and the fame aspect. So that is basically all in this book is my uh, fascination with this kind of stuff because, you know, they're playing somebody else, but they still have to find that within themselves. Um, you know, and we hear so many stories about actors who hook up on set or, you know, get together afterward. So, you know, there's some, there's something like fascinating about that too. Yeah, totally. And we also, I didn't, this isn't in the interview, but we loved how you tackled such serious things in such a light way, like the consent element with, um, the intimacy coordinator. I thought that that was just, I mean, when Ashton got asked if, if he was okay with it, I thought that was really it was very forward thinking, but also just interesting. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think, again, a little bit of an aspirational aspect. And I think this is happening on some film sets for sure. Um, but also like, this is what it could be. It could be that there is like an all Latinx cast and crew. Um, you know, it could be that the actors are well taken care of and nice to everybody around them, <laughs> you know, all of that stuff. I love that. So we we asked you already about who are some of your favorite authors who do open door um, sex scenes, but I'm also curious, who are some of your favorite Latinx romance writers, even if it's not of the open door variety? Uh, so not of the open door variety uh, would be uh, my friend Priscilla Oliveras. Um, she writes also these like very family centric uh, Latinx led stories. And she's got one that came out earlier this year called Island Affair that takes place in Key West, uh, which was uh, really nice to read at a time when we can't really travel and go on vacation. Um, And Mia Sosa, of course, Adriana Herrera uh, just had a book come out called Here to Stay, which is also really steamy, um, but that deals with some bigger issues, but also in a lighthearted way. And the romance is like very, it's like very cute, but like also like deep and hot and just, it's good. Who else? Uh, Zoe Castile has a series that is inspired by Magic Mike Double XL. Oh, what? Yeah. So Becca's the, making a list in her head right yeah. now. <laughs> Doing a lot of shopping after yeah. this episode. So the guys are male entertainers, um, and the first book is set in New York. Uh, and she's also a New York-based author. Yeah, I mean, there's so many of us writing right now. Uh, Sabrina Soul has some like really great um, books that deal with like food, like chefs and bakers and stuff. And they're all Latinx characters. And those are hot too. You're really filling up my cart here in a good way. <laughs> Sorry. No, in a good way. I, I asked for the recs. I want them. So I'm, I'm curious. I also read while we were doing some research for this, that you're part of the NaNoWriMo community. And can you tell us more about, first of all, what that is and then how you're involved there? Sure. Uh, NaNoWriMo is National Novel Writing Month. Uh, and it is every November. I started 
doing this uh, in 2004. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the goal is to write a 50,000 word novel in 30 days. Although that's like very flexible. Like you don't have to write 50,000 words. You're not, you know, lose if you don't do that. It's okay if you're working on something new, you know, or something that you've already started. You know, it's basically to get everybody being creative together all at once where there's this kind of support system in place. And it's great, especially for people who maybe have never written before, but have always wanted to. So I was a municipal liaison for them from, I think, 2006 to 2017, something like that, uh, which basically is like a community organizer, cheerleader kind of person, organizing events here in New York City, um, answering questions, sending you know the emails with news and event information. Now I don't have time <laughs> to do all of that, but I'm on their writer's board. So last year I was a nano coach. This year I I did a, a podcast interview with them and I wrote uh, one of their pep talks that'll go out next month. Oh, cool. Uh, it's a great organization, you know, really just focused on literacy. They do a lot of programs with, with schools, sending supplies to schools and classrooms with their Young Writers program. So, so what month good. is National Novel Writing Month? November. Oh, coming up on it. Yeah, right around the corner. So that's how- Becca, you- are you going to do it? I don't have time to write a novel. <laughs> um, so is that how your writing process still works? Is that something that maybe you've like built into your writing process is kind of like just banging out a first draft, you know, kind of in a, a shorter time period? Or do you usually write in a more relaxed way now? How does your process work? Huh. Oh, I wish I wrote in a relaxed way. <laughs> uh, I I spend a lot of time planning okay. my books. So this year especially, because so many things kept coming up and with the pandemic and all of that, uh, it took me a really long time to plot this next book. And then when I wrote it, I had very little time. (laughs) But I know how to just sit down and focus and write and get the words down once I know what I'm going to write. So I can do that very quickly. Yeah. I mean, it helps to know that I can write 50,000 words in a few weeks. I don't like to do that. I wish that I could figure out my process a little better so I could stop doing that to myself. But, you know, that's kind of just my way of doing it. Like I think about the book a lot. I write backstory scenes and character work and like all of this stuff. I have an outline and scene cards, all of this material. And then once I sit down to write it, it's basically like, okay, I'm going all in on this, living and breathing it for X number of days and getting it done. And then that's what I do. Wow. That's so intense. How many hours a day do you write when you're writing? Oh man. Um, it depends. I, <laughs> it's sometimes all day. Wow. Um, but I'm not like, like writing, writing all day. It's like, I'm at my desk and then I'm like, let me buy some things. Let me buy some makeup, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> cause I try to stay off social media when I'm writing because it just like, that will distract me even more. And then instead I online shop, which is also not great. You got to give yourself little rewards. Sometimes I'll be like, well, if you do these five projects, you can have, you can go on like shop bop and buy those jeans you want or buy a lipstick. Yeah. I, I'm not great at leaving the reward till after I've done the thing though. Oh, I usually end up like, you know, if it's like a snack or something, I'll eat it first. Or if it's buying something, I'm like, well, I deserve this. <laughs> yeah. I buy it. yeah. Yeah. In terms of number of hours, I kind of just try to leave all of the time available so that when I can write, I write. And yeah. then if I need to like take a break or a nap or something like that, then I do that. Yeah. yeah. Another thing we talked about in our book club episode was that as a reader, I feel like there have been some pretty huge shifts in the romance genre in the past, I don't know, I would say two to three years. But I'm wondering if you also feel that from the author side. I, I want to know your take on like what you're seeing in the genre selling books and you know knowing other authors. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, this industry, I think, is constantly changing. Um, I have not been publishing for that long. But even in this short period of time, there have been a lot of changes. Uh, For example, my first books were through a digital-only imprint that kind of folded, like, right around the time the books were coming out. (laughs) They still exist, but they just, like, weren't doing anything more with that imprint. And, you know, the the reasoning behind these digital-first um, or digital only imprints from traditional publishers was to kind of match what Amazon and self-publishing were doing, but it's a different model of selling, right? It's, you know, selling direct to the consumer as opposed to selling to the book buyer for a bookstore who stocks all of the books for that chain. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And it's just like one person that you have to convince that they need to carry this book. Um, so we've seen already just that shift away from traditional publishers doing that model and back into kind of what they know, which is selling to bookstores and, you know, even this shift away from mass market too, um, into trade paperback, illustrated covers. But we've also been here before. Um, I, I worked in a bookstore from 2002 to 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, which Barnes bookstore? Noble. Barnes Noble. Oh, the, the Union Square one? Uh, no, in Chelsea. Oh, okay. I've spent a lot of time yeah. at the Union Square one. Oh, I love the Union Square one. one. I used to work and in a bookstore in high school. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. I remember my body would just hurt when I'd come home and my hands oh, would always be so dirty. Like, I don't know. Oh, books yeah. never look dirty, but I'd have to like wash my hands like 25 times a day. Yeah. They're real dusty. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you were basically just carrying heavy loads of books all <laughs> yes. over the place. It's exhausting. <laughs> I was young and in high school, so it was fine. But I remember having like back problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's hard work. Uh, but I, you know, I remember even just then like the situation with mass markets, right? Like how they, they, they've kind of been, I feel like edged out a little bit by eBooks in terms of like this kind of cheaper format, um, more just disto- more disposable. Um, whereas, you know, with this is like really getting into the weeds, um, That's okay. mass, mass markets are not like returnable the same way that trade paperback books are. So for stores like indie bookstores or smaller chains, they take more of a risk carrying mass markets, which is part of why you wouldn't see as much romance in all of these other kind of places outside of like a Barnes and Noble kind of store. So when you talk um, about a mass market, is that like a Harlequin romance? Like, is that like one of the... Yeah, the little ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Whereas a trade paperback is the ones that are kind of like more like $15, okay. you know, a little bit bigger. Um, and those are returnable. So if they don't sell, they can send them back to the publisher. So they're not taking as much of a risk on those titles. So I think this shift, you know, and I, I really think the hating game was kind of that turning point there. Oh. Have you guys oh, heard interesting. that? I love the hating game. I am maybe the exception that I did not love the hating game. So Okay. So I loved it, but I can understand like that some people were not all in on Josh. <laughs> I thought that it was it was just like on the cusp of being creepy. <laughs> they were a little mean to each other for sure. Yeah. But I don't mind I, a hate to love romance, but I was like, for all intents and purposes, I only know that you that you don't hate each other because I can hear your inner monologue, but he doesn't know that. So like the fact that he is now coming to your house and undressed you while you are sick is like creepy. The only reason she's it's so not, hung up on I'm that so scene. I'm so hung up on that scene. So hung up on the it. The only reason it's not creepy is because I heard her inner monologue, but he didn't. So like creepy. Yeah, I love that part. I, I, <laughs> I love, love that part too. <laughs> True. I realize that I am the exception to the rule no, but here. Like I get it. <laughs> But I, I did love the book. And it's also, though, I, I think it was the turning point in terms of this type of format and then the success of that book and then everything we've seen since then. So, you know, publishing tries to, you know, they see that something does well and then they just try to replicate it until it doesn't do well anymore. And then they go on to whatever the next thing is. But, you know, the trade paperback format has allowed more placement and visibility. It has allowed more own voices and marginalized authors uh, to write books and have representation. I'm not always thrilled with how some of the covers, uh, the illustrated covers are done because having tried to work with stock photos for a cover with women of color, it's, it's really hard. (laughs) You know, there's just not a lot of great stock photos out there. Or if you have like some really good ones, a lot of other books have used them already. It just, it takes a lot of work. But with the illustrated covers, you really have the opportunity to have like really great representation on them. So for me, that's what I would love to see even more of. You know, we have the opportunity to show better representation in like a really respectful and beautiful way uh, with illustrated covers. So I would really like to see more houses, publishing houses, uh, exploring that. You know, there's also so many great artists out there who I'm sure would love the work. Yeah. So... Yeah, so this is partly why we've seen this trend toward the more trade paperback illustrated covers from like the business standpoint. But even outside of the covers and outside of the format like in mass market versus trade paperback, I feel like I've just noticed a difference in the substance where I feel like I so, you know, like 50 Shades of Grey set set off a, you know, 
opened the floodgates of romance. And I I definitely read some of the things that came after. And a lot of times it was like really poorly plotted. And it was like you were reading for the sex scenes and you were reading in spite of the writing sometimes. And I've definitely noticed that a lot of these romances have just become more elevated and you know, have sophisticated plots and have points of view outside of the sex scenes where there's kind of like this new genre. And maybe it isn't new. Maybe I just am reading it and I wasn't reading it before. But I feel like there's this like more elevated genre of books with open door sex scenes that are more than just the sex scenes that I would definitely put, you know, your writing into. And I think it's really fun and exciting that it's like you can have both now. Yes. I feel like I hated romance. Like I was like, oh, I don't read that until um, you told me to read it, Jasmine Guillory. And once I started reading her books, I was like, oh, I actually like this. And then I think I read The Hating Game. And then most recently, your book, um, because it's light and it's fun and it's an escape, but it's also tackling these more serious issues like, you know, representation or in Jasmine's books, racism comes up quite a bit. Consent in your book. I just think it's like it's been so refreshing to see for the industry. I mean, I think I think romance has always been doing this to a certain extent, but a lot of voices were getting shut out. Um, if you look a little bit into the the history, um, there's a, an editor, Vivian Stevens, who was working in the early 80s, who founded RWA, the Romance Writers of America. And she was working to get more own voices, marginalized voices, um, although at the time they were calling them ethnic romances, um, published, you know, or she had these authors, but they had to write books with white characters and things like that. And I think, you know, A, we're getting more of these voices being allowed to tell these stories that speak to our own experiences and cultures. But I do think that romance has always kind of included things that were of the times, like when um, birth control and condoms um, you know, started to show up more in the books. Like that was a big thing. And now if I'm reading a book and they don't mention the condom, I'm like, is, when, is she going to get pregnant? Like, I what? do the same thing. What's happening? Is this you know, foreshadowing? Like, they, Where is it? Worried? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you have to at least mention it. But but that was like, that was a huge deal. And I think they did have a conversation about that, like as a community back then, obviously I was not writing then and I was not part of it before my time. But you know, whether or not to include that, like, you know, what is the responsibility that we have as authors? You know, for me, the consent piece, like, you know, when um, Me Too uh, picked up steam as a conversation, there was also this question within the romance community of is consent sexy? And yes, of course it is. But then I think we have this responsibility to kind of elevate that and really show it clearly on the page and that it can be, you know, so sexy, so intimate and really like build these characters together. You know, I think we've seen uh, kind of a decline in how in how alpha heroes are portrayed. Yeah, not a not a decline necessarily, but just that they're they're shown differently, or mm-hmm. we're, we're seeing different types of heroes over the history of kind of the modern romance novel from like the seventies to now. Uh, the role of women has really changed. Like what kind of jobs they can have, what they're doing, um, how they relate to the other characters, to men. So. Um, you know, we're getting more LGBTQ romance now, of course, like in the mainstream, which, you know, even just a few years ago, these authors were told, well, that's not going to sell. Like we, we can't publish that book and put it in yeah. bookstores. It's just not going to sell. We can't put it in print, right? Same thing being told to authors of color or where the books were being segregated, right? The African-American section versus like including authors like Beverly Jenkins in the romance section because her books are romances. So we're seeing all of these changes too. But I do think that there were, there have always been books that are doing that work, but they weren't getting the attention. Yeah, always. yeah. I so I have not read the Fifty Shades books. I only recently watched the movies because a friend of mine insisted that we do virtual <laughs> movie <laughs> nights, and they're they're something else. But I I would not take those books as a as an example of what like romance as a genre really is. Those books definitely brought a lot of people to the genre. They did a lot for publishing, but you know, just content wise, they're, they're a different kind of book. Yeah. yeah. And did you notice, I guess, I don't know how much you can share with us, but on the publishing side, have you noticed throughout publishing your first book first or your first series versus starting this series that there is just more appetite in the market for romances? Like I, I feel like it's growing, but maybe I'm just only talking to and like 
following people who already like romances. So maybe it's just an echo chamber. I think so. It's hard because I'm in the echo chamber too. (laughs) But I think so. And again, I do think that the trade paperback piece has helped because that has allowed indie bookstores to really like get on board. And, you know, also romance authors and publishers have worked with indie bookstores to try to um, kind of bring them into the romance space as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, you hear so many stories where people say they went, they go into their local indie and they ask for a romance book and they're told we don't carry those books. So, you know, we're trying to change that as well. And that of course increases visibility and discoverability. Um, You know, I think um, things are changing. I think it'll be interesting to see what this year brings um, in terms of shifts in like what's, what's hot and like the different, Sub subgenres. I really wonder what the pandemic will do because I know for me personally, and I've heard this anecdotally from a lot of other people too, is that I have only been able to read things that are light. Like I can't, I have been able to bring myself to read very few literary fiction books, and usually I'll I'll read a, a pretty balanced diet of like lighter and more heavy. And I just like I can't go near that, and also I can't go near anything sad right now because I feel like I like catch the emotional. <laughs> wavelength of it. So I feel like I've been reading so much more romance during the pandemic because I'm like happy ending, like fun, light. I've heard that from other people who like follow us, but I wonder if if like it's going to create a trend in in sales in the industry. Yeah, I mean, I have also just been reading a lot of romance and YA. Um mm-hmm. I'm starting to get back I'm starting to get back into listening to celebrity memoirs on audiobook. Oh, too. we're a big fan of that. <laughs> big fan. Yeah, those are super fun. And also they kind of count as research. Yeah. But, you know, I think it'll be interesting just in terms of, you know, whether people want to see COVID show up in the books or not. Oh, yeah, that is interesting. Um, You know, and if people will, you know, still want to read, you know, books that like don't deal with it and that are in like a time where it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like office romances or online dating. All of these things just don't really happen. Or they're, they're not happening in the same way, yeah, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think we won't know how that plays out for maybe a couple years. Um, but I think that, you know, the way that paranormal kind of boomed in the early off, I think what we're going to see more of, and I hope so because this is what I love writing, is more of these kind of light paranormal rom-coms. Um, because, you know, it's a world like ours, but it's not because it's got witches and vampires and whatever else. Mm-hmm. So you can pretend that it's still the same world, but it's different. And like maybe COVID didn't happen in it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see where that goes too. But, you know, I I do think that in terms of what romance is tackling right now, it is things like consent and representation and I hate the word, but diversity, right? Um, You know, just showing different kinds of people living their lives happily. Yeah. Yeah. So one last question for you to end it on. I noticed that you have some amazing blurbs from some of our favorite romance authors. For You Had Me at Ola, I saw Jasmine Guillory on there, Chanel Clayton. And are all of our favorite romance authors friends behind the scenes? Like, what is the romance writing community like? I love this question so much. I was so excited when I saw it on the outline. I'm picturing, not during COVID, but I'm picturing you all having, like, fun writing retreats and, like, being BFFs. (laughs) I don't know if that's true. So... I mean, some of us do, you know, we, a lot of us know each other. Um, I used to be part of RWA. So I met a lot of romance authors through there. Um, you know, many of whom were really helpful to me when I was starting in this career. So yeah, a lot of the blurbs, uh, some of them are just people that I'm friends with. (laughs) So I was like, Hey guys, I got an arc if you want to read it. Uh, with Jasmine, Jasmine and I met a couple years ago in an event. So we, we, chat a bit. So I was like, so grateful that she read the book and gave me such a nice blurb. Um, and then Chanel, I actually did not know. So oh. that was kind of a like long shot. I was like, let's see, you know, um, yeah. cause she's like really like doing so well. Um, and she's got these, you know, beautiful books out. So we sent it to her, you know, my agent and editor helped me with um, coming up with a list of blurbs and reaching out to people who they knew, who knew the authors, um, if I didn't already know them. And, uh, you know, I'm just so grateful <laughs> that she read the book uh, and liked it. You know, I think also with Latinx romance authors and authors of color, like we, we know who's, who's out there and we kind of pay attention. I just yesterday 
posted a picture from on my Instagram account from the Latinx ROM retreat that I did last year uh, with seven other Latinx romance authors. And, you know, it's a year ago, like a year ago, I was there at the house <laughs> with them. And we had such an amazing time. Not a ton of writing was done, Fair. but we did talk about our projects a lot and our goals. And it was just like a really wonderful time. So yeah, some of us do get together and go on retreats. So yeah, I really miss them all this year. It's like been hard not to be able to see each other in person, but we're figuring out something virtual, I think. So that makes me so happy to hear that it's a supportive community and not like a competitive community. Me too. Well, you know, the way that I always think about it, like with other Latinx romance authors, like I can only write so fast. Right. (laughs) You know, I can only write so many books a year. So like, of course, I'm going to also promote other books that I think my readers will enjoy. You know, why wouldn't I? Yeah, yeah. you can't own 100% of somebody's yeah. reading for the year because like no, and- <laughs> anyone who's, well, not anyone, but most people are probably reading far more books than you could ever dream to create in a year. Yeah. Totally. You know, and, you know, we, we spend all year writing this book and publishing and editing and all of that. And then like, you know, you can read it in like a day. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, well, then there's all these other authors who you might like. So. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So you've been such a wonderful guest. And in the tradition of our podcast, you've earned your very own desperation minute to tell people where they can find you, how to follow you, what they can do to help you. Sure. Uh, So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Alexis Daria. My website is alexisdaria.com. The best place to stay up to date on my news is through my newsletter, which you can sign up for at alexisdaria.com. And I always will send stuff like cover reveals early and like behind the scenes stuff there. So it's a fun place to be. Very fun. And remind us, what is the um, name of your first series? The Dance Off. The Dance Off. So go pick those up. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to. I'm going to add yeah. that to my very expansive cart that I have going right now from all your recs. Yeah. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. This was so Th- much fun. We loved having you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great combo. 